Shalom and welcome to Product Nation, a weekly podcast by product managers in Silicon Valley covering how tech products get created and executed by some of the most accomplished product experts in the world. I'm Ophir Barav and today with me and my co-host Nir Paz, we welcome Oren Inditsky. Oren, tell us about something fun before we get started. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. So I think as we spend so much time in front of screens these days, I really try to take some time and go outdoors whenever I can with my kids and family. And, and recently we came back from Bend, Oregon. If you haven't been Wonderful place, surrounded by lakes, rivers, waterfalls, and the town itself has amazing vibe. Highly, highly recommend. Yep. At least I'm hearing that some of the smoke from California has finally made it over there for some time. And I think they've had their own smoke for the Portland area. But what'd you do there? You mentioned a lake. Yeah. So we went to a few lakes there. Elk Lake. We oh. went to the waterfalls. We spent some time in the river. So really endless opportunities there. And just the vibe itself is amazing. They got great food. They make their own coffee, their own beer. Just wonderful place. Highly recommend it. Definitely tempting to go conquer that town as a Californian. I remember back in the day when I had a dog, we used to go there and everything's covered in lava and we had to put special doggy shoes so that he would be able to walk on the lava beds there. It's all pointy rocks, basically. Great. Well, let's get started and tell us a little about yourself. How did you get to product management? Yeah. So born and raised in Israel, served in a, a combat special forces unit over there, then went to get my undergrad in engineering. I worked as an R&D engineer at HP, crossed the Atlantic to go to MIT, did my MBA there, joined Dell as a product manager, gradually promoted to become a director of a big team. And now I'm working as a director of product for Expedia Group. Maybe you can shine a light on where in your career you actually stumbled into product management and how, how did you get there? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question, right? And as there's no structured way to get into that, but throughout my career, I learned different things that kind of contributed to where I am today. I think first of all, in the Israeli special forces, is is hierarchy doesn't always work and you find yourself in a situation where you need to get people to follow you because they want to, not because they have to. And fast forward many years today, product management, it's somewhat the same case, right? You don't really do the job. You need the engineers to write the code. You need the designers to move the pixel. You need the analysts to do the job. So it's all about that. I think that I gained a lot. Then when I was an R&D engineer at HP in Israel, we didn't really have product managers. So I had to work with marketing, understand the needs. What should I develop? And then define the products. And then I realized, hey, this is actually what I want to go and do. And there are many ways to get to product management. The one that I chose is to get an MBA at MIT. The good thing about it, um, strong business foundation, but a lot of hands-on product management education. So just when I joined, had a product, I had a project with Microsoft, Cisco. I went to South Africa for two months to help a startup there, then did my internship at Amazon as a product manager for the Kindle app. So again, a lot of, a lot of great foundation there. And moving forward, whenever I chose the right career path, it was all about making sure that I'm passionate about the product, making sure that I have the impact and making sure also there's the right management for me to develop and get mentorship. And I think these are the things that kind of led me throughout my career. Owen, what are some tips perhaps that you can share about paving a career? You've got such an amazing career behind you and, and ahead of you. Can you share some tips on what worked, what didn't work? So I think you have to make sure that you have passion in what you do. When you have passion about what you do, especially in product management, it gets the most out of you. You think about new ideas, you do more to get the product better and, and it shows. I mean, you give this energy to the rest of the team. So I think throughout my career, I try to make sure that I'm working on products and projects that I'm passionate about. I think the other thing is to ensure that you have the right mentorship around you that would allow you to flourish, that would allow you to learn. I think as a product manager and a product leader, 
you have to be humble and constantly open-minded for new ideas, concepts. So surrounding yourself with the right mentors and people to watch, I think is always a great thing that will allow you to flourish. So I see Adele, you go from senior product manager to director of product management, and actually there's a group product manager in between. What was involved there to get you through these amazing blaze through steps? So the first thing, I joined Dell mostly because I met with a manager that I felt that could provide me with the ownership and the impact. He was a VP at Apple before, worked directly with Chief Jobs. And an interview that was supposed to be 30 minutes ended up being two hours. And he really provided me with the responsibility. So I led uh, software for their new tablet business and came up with differentiating software that would add value beyond the hardware. We won CS Mobile Device of the Year. And then the company saw, hey, we actually have a person here and a team that can add value to our devices, why won't we let them do it for the entire PC business? So 40 million devices every year. And then I started a team, uh, new product managers, pitching ideas, trying to get funding. And gradually we developed software that became the forefront of the company in terms of how they promote themselves. We did products all the way from AI that boosts performance, gaming products, VR, as well as the first ever software that provided complete PC smartphone integration that won CES Best Software. And after doing this, I identified that after working on so many different products, I got to go seeking that passion, right? And the thing that I was most passionate about was travel. And then I found the opportunity with Expedia. Which product or initiative do you lead in Expedia? Yeah, so at Expedia, I work as a director of product. I lead a global product management organization. It's a 60 plus person delivery team. And we're responsible for a two-sided e-commerce marketplace for deep discount travel deals. Hotwire, if you know it in the US. So we're Mm -hmm. focusing mostly on strategic initiative intended to unlock new audiences and drive increased customer repeat rate. But the cool thing about this product is that it really provides customer with deep discounts up to 60% for travel deals, mostly hotels. And at the same time, it's a win-win situation, both for hotels. We help hotels clear unsold inventory and at the same time offer it to customer at deep discounts. You mentioned Hotwire. So is that Hotwire is the product? Is it owned by Expedia or? Yeah, so Expedia, not too many people know about it, but it's the largest travel company in the world and actually one of the biggest e-commerce companies in the world. So above 100 uh, billion annual gross booking. And it owns many of the brands that you know and love, such as Hotels.com, Expedia, Hotwire, Trivago, Travelocity, Verbo, and so on. And Hotwire specifically is focused on opaque offering, meaning that as a customer, you get 60% discount, 50% discount, but you do not know the name of the hotel that you're about to get. So on the product piece, what we need to do is to provide you as much information as you can that you'll be willing to take the risk to get this awesome reward. And on the other side of the platform, we need to ensure that hotels are getting what they're looking for, which is selling their unsold inventory. A couple of times. I like the element of surprise. You go, you stay in some place, and if you don't really care where you're staying or spending uh, time at night, and you're just looking for just a, an affordable place to stay or for a specific night, then that's actually a great solution. So what happens after Corona? Yeah, so, so the Corona virus was definitely a once in a lifetime event specifically for the travel industry, right? And I think it was an, a major a learning experience for all the player in the industry. But what you see specifically for the online travel agencies, as opposed to the ones that have airplanes and hotels and restaurants and ships, you see that there was more agility and those companies specifically were able to adapt faster. And I think for me, it shows two things. One, the promise 
promising future outlook of the tech industry. And the other one is the importance of being a smart business. So smart business is a term that was coined by Ming Zheng, a professor in business and also one of the legendary strategy leaders for Alibaba. And what he said basically is that you have three cornerstones for a smart business. The first one is making sure that you have adaptable products and services. So we can change the way the product looks and feels. We can change what we're offering for you. So not a lot of industries can do that. The other thing is datification. So making sure that we capture everything the user, customer, and supplier do in order to learn from that information. I think the last piece of it is algorithm and machine learning that allows you to use this data to constantly update the products. And these things combined with some strategies, I think really allow the online travel agencies to basically survive and actually become even stronger during this time to help the customer later on. So first of all, we realized, for example, right, real time that customers are looking for what we call drive markets. So if you're a customer in San Francisco, I won't keep offering you Manhattan or Austin. But for San Francisco, we saw that most customers are looking for those 200 miles radius destinations. So if you live in San Francisco, you'll get Napa Valley, for example. If you live in Los Angeles, you'll get Palm Springs. So these are the deals that we're offering for you. Another thing that we saw is that customer lack the confidence. So we are working closely with hotels to make sure that we surface to you which specific coronavirus measures are being taken. It's being updated on a daily basis to inject trust into your purchase behavior. So these are some things, for example, that we're doing right now. And I think last but not least, I think the mechanism easily saw that customers prefer either flexible deals that you can cancel or last minute. And you see the entire industry is going for those two directions. Just for context, what do you expect would be the output of sales this year versus last year? Are we talking about 60% reduction or 50? So without getting too much into numbers, you definitely see air and flights being challenged. But at the same time, you see very good recovery in lodging, hotels, and actually vacation rentals. So Verbo, you're getting your own home for your vacation, is seeing an amazing year so far. Is there something that didn't work out after Corona that has challenged you that you're working on that you can share with us? Yeah, definitely. So we spoke specifically about Hotwire. The good thing about Hotwire, it's a win-win situation for customers and hotels. For hotels, the cancellation rate in the hotel industry are pretty high. But at Hotwire, as we provide last-minute deep discounted deal, the hotels know that there's basically no cancellation. So imagine one day you wake up and not only that no one's booking, but everyone's canceling. And your entire product, all the way from the connectivity system to the backend, to the data science, all the way to the customer is all built upon non-refundable. So you need to do several things. First of all, change the product upside down, but more than anything, help the customer cancel right? Because that's what's important. So building self-serve cancellation tool for customers and then working on strategies that would allow you to recover. So basically looking towards the future, understanding what you're about to do at each stage and define the specific metrics that will let you know when you're moving from stage one to stage two and stage three to inject as much predictability as you can in this turmoil. But obviously you need to adjust it along the way. Prior to this call, we agreed that we would talk about a very interesting arena, which is the structure for success in business. Can you share with us some tips and ways that you go about your zero to one situations? Because there's several of those in your career. Yeah, so I think when you go into a zero to one kind of project, either a whole new product from scratch or a totally new project for a product company, there are basically two parts to it. There is the buying part to get the people around you, to get the money and everything. I think there's a lot of art and science into it, but I think we can do a whole episode about this. Let's focus on the most fun part, which is the product definition part. 
start. I think this is something that I learned along the way, coming up with several different new products from scratch that I realized, oh, I should have done that or saw how different companies do it, learning from my mentors and also from a lot of friends of mine in the product business and, and gradually became with a template or a structure that I'm using with my product managers today and used in previous company that I found that can really work across different companies, industries, and products. So basically you won't hear any totally new concept, but it puts everything in the right structure. So first and foremost, probably everyone tells you that you have to start with the target customer, right? Understand the classic product market fit, which specific segment in the market you're going after. And this is such a key because if you choose the right segment, if you get it wrong, you'll come up with different problems and with different solutions. So you'll get it all wrong and definitely know your persona. I think the second thing is to make sure that you know and define the customer problem and ensure that you're building products that truly solve customer problem and define it purely from the customer point of view. A big mistake that a lot of people do is they think about the business at this point. First of all, you want to make sure that you benefit the customer and address their needs. And at this point, you have to do all the research if you have a research team, great. If not, spend time going outside the building, doing the focus group, interviews, surveys, shadowing the customers. I've seen this working really, really well because sometimes customers are not even telling you what they need because they're not aware of it. But if you're looking at them, how they address their daily challenges, in many cases, you come up with the right solutions. I think after this, and really after this, now make sure that the problems that you're solving are really benefiting the business. So if the problem that you're solving does not align with the strategy of the business, it's just not gonna fly. And this is also the time for you to come up with the business case and size everything. And then after you do all these things, and I see a lot of companies are missing that part, start st for a second and think about your goal, what you're really, really trying to accomplish, right? Don't include the how, stay away from numbers because you see from a lot of different cases that you can be wrong with the metrics that you're attempting to move. But with the goal, you have to make it right. And I think that after you do all these things, your customer, you define the problem, you understand the benefits of the business, you come up with the goal, now you think about the business. And I think specifically as a product leader, you really have to come up with the right metrics that would allow your product managers to get up in the morning and really understand what they need to focus on, right? Because they always find themselves looking at great ideas, but they need to know what they're trying to move. And I think in metrics in general, right, you want to measure your progress towards the goal. And the fewer metrics you define, the more focus you'll have from your team. I think the key thing here is... Uh, Wait, say it again. The fewer, the more the fewer focus metrics. you have from the team. Yeah. Oh. I mean, you can come up with a lot of metrics, right? But if you have too many things that you're after, you'll find the team not really knowing what they're focusing on. And if they have different decisions that they need to make, they can go all over the place. Yeah. So the idea well, here, oh, please, yeah. No, I just wanted to share that I found it very eye-opening that your mechanism is to actually set the goal at the end and not in the beginning. Some people do set the goal first based on the fact that you then try to justify your goal and everything that you do because you've set your goal. But the way that you're talking about your process, you really are studying that your customer is getting their problems solved. And in that journey, you come up with a goal. Is that a fair say? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's in the end, but I think there are three things that you need to do before that goal. A, the customer and their problem. B, the benefit for the business. And C, the strategy overall for the company. Only once you have this triangle, 
then you come up with a goal because you want to have a goal that both serves the customer and the business, right? And not the other way around. If you come up with the goal before you're understanding the customer problem, right? You might be attacking something that won't get you anywhere. And only then you come up with the metric. And I think for metrics in general, right? If I need to lay out a good structure for this is come up with a very focused single or, or two primary metrics. These are the things that you're really trying to move. Don't make it too complicated. Use those metrics that your organization keep using, even if it's not a pure product metric, meaning that even other functions move it. But then you oh, need- Owen, oh, can you give an example just of a metric that has not worked and then how you calibrated to a metric that did work, for example? Let me think about it, for example. So I think the, the COVID-19 situation was a great example, right? In the beginning of the year at Expedia, we came up with a metric for some product that was basically room nights, right? And then COVID comes and then you decide, okay, so either I stop measuring myself, which you don't want to be in this situation, or you're saying, okay, room nights might not be the right thing to look after because everything that we're facing right now. So what's going to be a different metric that would show me that I am making progress towards that goal, but would not be dependent on this thing that right now is basically impossible to measure right now. So you're finding different metrics that would still allow you to understand if you're making that progress. So that's a classic example, right? Yep. Yep. As you talk, one thing that is not hideable here is your excitement, your passion for industry. Of course, you've gravitated to the things that you love. You can hear it. And I think that's so important as PMs to get off our cloud of technical capabilities for a second, because most of us come from a technical background anyway. And it's a given, you have to have the technical background, but without that, that passion for the business side, nothing really gets paved. And so this is one of the things that is so important and you can literally hear it in your voice. When I think about you, I think about, I don't know, just meeting you in a terminal in an airport uh, about to go close a big deal somewhere. And it's always been like that. Every time I talk to you, I get that feeling. And I just want to talk about that important takeaway that without having that passion for the business, it's probably not the right thing for you to be building. I think so. And, and I think it's also the same thing when I'm looking for the right people to join my team. It's something that I'm looking for. You know, as a product manager, it could be a very frustrating job or it could be a very rewarding job. Depends on how you're looking at it. Because every day you come to work, you have your ideas and try and the different things that you're trying to move, but you're not really doing the work. You need engineering to follow you. You need analytics to follow you. You need the business to support you. And you have to have that perseverance and resilience to to get to that goal that I think the biggest power to get there is passion and energy. I think it's something that's very important for product managers and it also adds to their leadership, right? Because if you bring that energy to the team, you will get the people to follow you. And I think without that, you don't really see the light of day. You mentioned new ways to measure the age of COVID. So what would be some of the KPIs that you're using to measure your business or your products? I mean, nights per day, right. I mean, it, it's not going to work. But what are some of the substitutes that you're using today? I mean, I'm asking because I'm probably going to be surprised by the answer. I like that. Yeah. So I think you can do several things. In general, when you look at the primary metric, the primary metric itself does not tell you the story of what you need to go and do. I think for every primary metric, you need to come up with your supporting metric, right? So the different things that you will move or change in order to impact the primary metric. And in many cases where the primary metric is no longer valid, you might find yourself going to those supporting metrics and see, okay, if the primary metric does not matter anymore, what from those supporting metrics, okay, that impact the primary metric would allow me to understand the progress. In many cases, for example, instead of going for, let's say, room nights, maybe go for percentages. So if you want to push one product over the other, or if you're looking for a behavior change, so you want to look at the total 
transactions that are happening and how many of those are those transactions that you're looking for that are really impacting your business both in the short term but mostly in the long term and i think last but not least you always want to look at customer satisfaction so having metrics that measure that how your product is perceived how happy your customers are that could be a proxy for retention rate for customer repeat rate this is also i think sometimes a good metric to go and follow in those times where you really don't have baselines of how many you need to sell of how many transactions you're looking for it's very hard to measure customer satisfaction and especially now when there are more factors to measure it i mean i'm trying to think i mean how would you measure that specifically in a product like hotwire so one i guess that you have two levers to play with one is how many customers are coming back saying hey this was amazing and the other one is how many customers are actually complaining and then the factors in both are going to change because for instance you can be happy about breakfast or unhappy about the way you treat COVID-19, for instance. Have you seen change in those during this time in in that specific industry? So actually, you see that those customers that are purchasing are actually happier than they used to be before. And this is exactly sometimes what we're measuring. We call it the the post-booking score. Specifically with an opaque offering such as Hotwire, as a product manager, you're doing a good job if you were able to reduce the risk for that customer. So once the hotel is being revealed, they're happy with the result because you provide them almost everything they need on the way to be able to take that risk to take this amazing reward. Now, we know that the reward is amazing. The question is how happy the customer was in terms of satisfying their specific needs. And if eventually I overpromised to you or sold you a hotel, but this is not really what you're looking for, I haven't done a good job injecting trust and increasing your confidence on the way. So We get a post-booking score, basically. Are you happy or not happy with the result or the hotel that you eventually received? And then we basically know if we've done a good product management and how customer-centric we were throughout this journey. Yeah, super interesting and actually unique to that specific, to this specific product because post-purchase satisfaction, I mean, it's pretty standard around most products unless the product is a surprise. Exactly. Uh, so and if you think, yeah. You don't know what you're going to get. That's, that's it's a very complex problem to solve in the e-commerce space. How many e-commerce companies are selling you something for hundreds or even thousands of dollars that you're not really sure what you're about to get? So there's a great responsibility for us to ensure that once you're about to book, you're going to be happy eventually with what you get because there's a big risk factor. And if you'll be happy, you find that our repeat rates are higher than anyone else in the industry because of that. So this is what we need to make sure that we're reducing the risk for you. We're injecting confidence. We're providing you with an honest picture of what you're about to get without telling you what you're about to get eventually. Let's keep going just for a little bit. Two areas that are really interesting, Oren, are one about how you go about building a team, when do you know that it's the right time to add another PM? And hopefully, if you can remember all these, if not, I'll remind you, how do you go about selecting for the best candidates? So it's a combination of three questions. I would say the first thing about it in terms of managing a team, right? It's almost managing or coaching a basketball team. So different product managers specifically, right? Have different capabilities, different passions, different career goals, different qualities. I think the key is to match the right person for the right job. And I think what I found that works really well, I think we talked about it before, motivation and passion 
human is probably, I think, the, one of the biggest power in nature and human nature in general, right? So not only you need to find the right person with the right qualities to do the job, but to make sure that that specific job can provide a vehicle for that person to fulfill their career goals. And then they wake up in the morning, right, fully motivated and, and having a lot of purpose in what they do because they see how that specific thing is going to also contribute to them. So if you can match a career goal and use that product project as a vehicle and design it in a way for that specific individual, you'll get way more out of this person. I think that's one person of how I try to match people for the right goal. I think the other thing is, okay, when's the right time to add a person? So some companies are saying, hey, we need this specific ratio of engineers to product managers. I don't think that's the right thing for you to dictate when you want to add another player to the team. It could be a good validation to check health in general. But what I look at is ownership, right? And if you have a specific area that requires focus that is different from what you've been doing so far, if you take a product manager that is already working on something and ask them to add this thing to their focus areas, they're starting to spread thin. I think focus is key here. So if you feel it's a totally new area that requires new focus, understanding new problem, new customers, probably that's the time for you to add another person to focus on that specific problem. So this is what I use mostly. And in order to validate it, I do use the ratio, but this is mostly to check the health of the team. Great. And how do you go about selecting for motivation, for passion, and for these other characteristics that you validated really worked for you? So so in general, I think in interviewing process, I look at three things. I would say you want to look at what I call and what other companies call product sense. So the ability to have a structured way, to be humble, not be that person that I know the solution and jump to it because usually that's a recipe for failure. Uh, really know how to go from A to B using a structure or, or process or something, but at the same time have good eye for design and be creative and data-driven. What are some subtleties that you look for for that particular example of a product sense? Is it just the pride that somebody has or confidence? Do they need to just show a lot of confusion? What do they need to show for, for you to sense that, hey, this, this person is not full of themselves and it's going to be... I, I think it's a combination of being both creative and confident, but at the same time, be humble enough to be able to ask the right questions and just to know that you don't know everything, right? I think the biggest mistake that you can do as a product manager is to say, I know exactly how to solve it. Mm -hmm. But you're just one person, right? So you want to take the time to understand the customer, understand the problems, come up with the right principles and so on. So this is what I'm looking for. And I think the other piece is leadership, right? And leadership you need for, for two reasons. One, as a product manager, you're not the one moving the pixel, writing the code, coming up with the wireframes. You need to have a team to do that for you and support you. And you you need to be able to motivate them to get them to do it. And the other thing is is for you to get the buy-in, to manage stakeholders, and, and you have to be a leader to do those things. I think the two things that are most important is leadership and product sense. And last but not least, you have to be a team player because product management is a people's job. You want to have someone that can work with people, get the most out of people, and just be a great player in addition to the team. Can you give an example of a, in two minutes, one minute for a good answer for product sense and another one for a bad answer for a product sense, just to see the style of the subtleties that you look for, because obviously this is not linear. You don't have a lot of time. And so in a very short amount of time, what are some signals of what you mean of this 
sort of uh, questioning. Process. Yeah, I think the negative signal is the easiest one, right? You can do it either for a product that you're working on. You can do it either for a hypothetical product. But the worst thing to go and do is to jump straight to the solution. Okay, this is what I'll build. Even if it's the most amazing thing in the world and the right answer, and we're not really looking for the right answer, that does not show the right thinking process. On the other way around, if you come with a solution that is not perfect because this is being done on the fly, but you have the right process of asking the right questions, looking for the right things, coming with the right process and approach to eventually come to the right answer. I think this is what we're looking for, to have structure, to have the right approach and the right thinking rather than come up with the most amazing solution right away. So passion, leadership, lining the opportunity with a person's aspirations and ultimately selecting through those filters. It's certainly something that a lot of people mention often. Do you go through a few of these or are you one of those people that can actually extract any more at this point in your career within a very short time from let's say 30 45 minutes that, that is left to the actual interview are you able to extract right there what you needed from a candidate i'm looking for people to be humble and just making sure that they don't think they know everything that's the same thing for me with interviews you want to bring the right team and the right panel for this interview to check different things from different point of views and bring that answer to some sort of a committee and discuss it together right because especially in product management you have to work with a lot of functions a lot of people so even if i think that a candidate is amazing I'm actually looking for other people to tell me what they think from their point of view to form a decision. Oh, and here's another way of looking at it. As you think back about your career, when you think about the earlier phases of your career, when you went to interview people, what are some drastic changes in the way that you consider people these days from your learnings? I think I bring a lot more real world situation that I've been facing that I know, okay, this is the kind of person I want next to me, or this is the kind of team player I'm looking for to manage through a tough situation rather than just going by a book. And, and so you bring a lot of different situations. For example, some things that I'm looking for is how do you work with stakeholders? So as much as we'd like to think that product managers just dealing with product definition and the fun things of designing products, in many cases, 90% of the job is how do you work internally with the different functions, generate alignment, and doing all those things to, to eventually be successful. So that's one thing that I'm looking for right now, right? So not just how you design products, but how do you manage and solve different situations between different stakeholders and how do you eventually be successful in these situations? So these are things that I didn't do in the beginning. Another thing that I'm looking for is just look for a person that would be a great team player, right? Because if a person could be a rock star, but he would not work well with a team, that team is not going to be a championship team. If you're looking for a person that would be a successful by himself or herself, but cannot make the others better, it's also probably not a good addition. So a lot of different things that I've seen that didn't work with different candidates and different people. So now these are things that I'm now looking for, for people to join the team. So welcome to our special corner. And we like to ask at the end of the interviews, if you had all the resources, you didn't do what you do today and you can build anything that you want, what would you build? What type of product? What would that be? So I actually stay within travel. I think there are a few things that needs to happen for me to eventually build such a thing. But if I would look at almost a North Star or something that I would say, okay, this is what we need to go and build eventually if we would have all the components. If you think about it today, right? You remember the days where you needed to get from point A to point B. You need to take a map, decide where you're going to go, how much it's going to take, where you're going to stop was such a painful process. And today you just go to Google Maps, you define your destination, it does everything for you. It used to be a process that would take you a lot of time to go and do. And I think travel should be the same. I mean, the booking is almost solved. 
finding the right hotel, the right flight and everything, but planning your trip. I want to go to Bend, Oregon. You need to talk to people, get recommendation. It takes a lot of time for you to plan that. And if you won't do it, you probably end up not having a great experience. So imagine that with the data that we sit on as a company such as Expedia, right? Imagine that with AI, machine learning and advanced personalization, you'll be able to tell me, okay, I want to go to Bend, Oregon and we'll build the trip for you, right? And then you'll book. I think this is the added value that potentially I think the travel industry needs to add to customer beyond just the booking experience. And I'll be happy to be part of getting, I think, the travel industry into this direction. For some people, that's the fun part, right? You sit down and you design your trip. You think about where you're going to go, what you're going to do. So basically, you would give them a list of basically pre-considered recommendation that's supposed to match their taste. Yeah, something like this. Exactly. You can pick and choose. You can do your own. But for a lot of people, this is a lot of effort, a lot of friction. And in many cases, they either find herself in a situation or an experience that is not amazing, or they just give up travel altogether. Because how would I plan a family trip to Bend, Oregon, right? It's just too complicated. I won't do it. Or I'll do it, and it's not going to be as amazing. Obviously, Obviously, different customers would be looking for different things, but I think it's something that we need to provide our customer, basically provide them with value with the power of data. And we see on a lot of data in this industry, and we need to give more than just a great booking experience. So Owen, first of all, can people that share your passion in this example, this is almost a trope. I've seen those companies come and go. I think I have a friend even that, that sold a company in that territory a few years ago. But the thing is that machine learning keeps changing. And I think that it's definitely ripe for exactly what you just mentioned with so many more customizations and sort of second guessing what you really want in a good way. Would you invite people to reach out to you for this? Would you like to sit on a board of a company that does exactly that? Can people reach out for you for that? Yeah, definitely. In general, I'm happy to discuss product in general. I have a lot of friends in the product business and I love exchanging different approaches for travel, not for travel. We're always looking for great people and great product managers to join Expedia. So obviously, yeah, if anyone will reach out, just ping me on LinkedIn or an Inditsky. would love to chat. And you're hiring right now or not specifically at this moment? So Expedia in general is hiring and always looking for product managers. My team specifically not right now. Yeah. So Owen, we've spoken about metrics. Any other things in your toolkit? I think after metrics, I go and do several things. I'll go quickly through them, but maybe focus on three that are not very common. So after metrics, I think about 10. I obviously look at the competitive landscape. I come up with the product requirements document. I look at risks. And then I make sure to focus on a press release and network effects. But why don't we focus on, I think, tenants? Yeah, yeah. Go, go for it. And when you say tenants, effect. what do you mean? Exactly? Yeah. So, so tenants, basically, these should basically serve as a compass that guides your product managers when making decisions. It's almost a framework for decision making. Trying to foresee the different decisions that you'll need to make along the way and try to agree right now and align on a way that you'll go about doing those. It's not about the solutions, but how you're going to build them, whether you're going to prefer one approach over the other and so on. For example, if along the way, you might want to have integration to a platform, but that's not your MVP. So one of your tenants could be whatever we develop will be built in a way 
that will allow us to have this further integration, for example. Well, Another thing that when I developed the first ever complete PC smartphone integration, one tenant was complete access and always connected. So if I could come up with a product that would just give you access to texts and calls, that's not following the tenant because you'll still need to look at your phone for the WhatsApp messages from the likes from Instagram. So we use that tenant when we came up with the MVP. So that's basically tenants or, or, or principles that would guide you to make decisions along the way. The second thing that I want to focus on, right, it's basically a tool both for defining the product, but also for internal and external communication. What I like doing, and that idea was born at Amazon, is to write a hypothetical press release that would declare what the press would say about the product once it's going to be released. What it basically allows you is to work backwards from the customer rather than starting from an idea and then trying to pin customers onto it. And you're building it in a way that is targeting your target audience. And if your target audience audience doesn't seem so excited about the solutions or the problems you're solving, maybe your product is not so exciting. So you'd rather spend more time on iterating that press release rather than much more expensive time iterating the product after you released it and no one using it. By the way, on that real quick, how much would you say your career has been shaped by that relatively short period of working at Amazon? A big chunk? I think a lot. I think Amazon is great in coming up with structures and being very customer focused. So I think till this day, I use ideas that I learned at Amazon and I've seen it working across different companies, industries, B2B, B2C, I think a lot. Amazon, I mean, there's a reason why they are where they are today. Very unique culture, very unique product approach. And I think a lot of companies uh, learn a lot of ideas from them. I tend to agree. I'm in the same position here also. Short stint, but you learn so fast, so quickly. On my second week in the company, I send out a survey to something like 100,000 customers. I mean, you don't do that on your second week, designing and doing the whole thing on your own in other places. But in Amazon, you, you do. I so. keep hearing from a lot of people, the direct approach and accountability that come out of Amazon culture are absolutely priceless. And people talk about all the benefits that you get in certain companies at Amazon. I think everybody knows you'll get American coffee and you'll get water. Those are the two benefits you get at that company. Everything else that's held together there has to do just with one thing, culture. And it's the strongest culture around and it sets people to such amazing principles and success. Great. So last one is in that work effects that you wanted to chat to us? Yeah. Now, now this is probably not applicable for any product, right? Because this template, template is pretty good for B2B, B2C, different kind of product. But network effects specifically for consumer internet products, I think are crucial. And it's not something that you want to leave for an afterthought because potentially you'll build your product differently to understand how you can use network effects. And network effects is basically the ability, I think, for a product or a service to become exponentially more valuable to its users as more people use it. And eventually it allows you to create a flywheel that accelerates growth, boosts customer value, and also drive potentially your unit costs down, right? And now the question is, how do you go about creating this? And how do you think about it in the product definition? It's not just marketing. I think there are important four product loops that you want to think about at the very beginning of how you're going to leverage those in terms of how you solve the customer problem. So the first one is viral. You want to build your product in a way that would encourage customers to share it with others. There are different examples of how you use it. I think the best example probably is the Groupon example. It was one of the fastest consumer internet companies in terms of growth in the beginning. And if you remember, they encourage you to share the product because only if you had 200 people register for a specific coupon, you'll get it only then. It was just amazing growth that worked with them. And if you think about it for consumer internet products, there are different ways that you can go about it and you need to 
to really think out in the very beginning, how you do it and bake it into the product definition. I think the second thing is a social loop. The idea here is to encourage participation from users, not just consumption. A classic thing in the travel industry is our reviews. So if more customers are providing reviews, the second customer that comes in will have a better understanding of whether that specific deal meets their needs, yes or no. You see it in Facebook, you see it in Instagram. So all those giants that were able to generate those loops and network effects, it worked great for them. A third loop, which is probably the toughest one, is the compulsion loop. Compulsion basically is to create that urge for you to come back more and more. If you think about it, the gaming industry nailed it, right? You always want to come back and try again. The competitiveness. If you think about Robinhood, just come in and see how much money you made or lost that day. But variable rewards, it's something that constantly gets you to come back for more. Costco, by the way, is great at that. You come back, you come to the store every time you see different things. And I think the last but not least is obviously the data loop. You want to make sure that the more people use your product, the better it is. And you want to have the right algorithm, the right machine learning to make sure that all the data that you get from the usage of your customers is serving the customers back and making your product better and better. Cool. So shameless plug-in for all the listeners, please share this episode with as many people as you can. Let people know about Product Nation and give us five stars on the Apple Podcast. Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to to this uh, podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. Okay, I think uh, we've covered everything. It's Yom Kippur, so if you're fasting, have an easy fast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Owen. I really enjoyed this conversation and enjoy the rest of this weekend. Great show. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you.